Today's show is brought to you by IBM. Technology today has never been smarter, but smart only matters when you put it to good use. Together, we can build a smarter future for all of us. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. Here's my friend and colleague, Kara Swisher, to tell you more. HBO's Silicon Valley is as timely as ever as Pied Piper founder Richard Hendricks pivots to build a decentralized internet free of ads and data tracking. But as the saying goes, new internet, new problems. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. I watch it every week. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Media Headquarters in New York City. Before we get started, one very quick request. Tell someone else about this show. You're smart. You listen to Recode Media. You know how to do it. I will stop asking you now. Okay, I'm back here with Josh Topolsky. My script says formerly of The Verge. Mm-hmm. Also formerly of Engadget, formerly of Bloomberg. Yeah. Many other things. People describe me as a co-founder of Vox Media. First time, first time in this building. <laughs> first time I've ever been in the new building. Uh, and, uh, wait, wait, before we go into history, yeah. you're currently yes. the CEO of The Outline. That's true. Josh Topolsky, welcome. Thank you. Describe The Outline. The Outline is my attempt to make something new on the internet and media that doesn't subscribe to many, as many as possible of the old bad ideas we have about digital media. Before we get to what it is. Let me tell you, I'll tell what you. Is it's, it? it's a uh, publication. Digital that covers, media publication. It's a, it's a digital media publication yep. that covers kind of like, think of it like a digital magazine that covers three areas and typically the convergence points of those areas. Power, which is who has power, who wants it, and what do they do when they get it. Culture, which is the arts, food, how we live with one another, film, TV, et cetera, and uh, the future which is technology and all the cultural trappings of technology and where that's taking us. These are things you've written about and edited about and published about in the past, kind of combined yes. in one condensed yes. uh, idea. This is the, uh, usually at Recode Media. This is a free podcast where we talk to everyone about their paywall strategy. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's your paywall strategy? When oh. do you start charging? Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk about that for real? Uh, it's a joke, haha, because it it's free. It, yeah, I see. Uh, paywall. I mean, do you want to actually have a conversation about paywall? We are going to have a conversation okay. about paywalls, but but here's we don't have a paywall strategy. And and our not, paywall is uh, we have ads. You have ads, and they're really fucking cool. Am I allowed to swear? Swear I, it up. Okay, good. Whatever the fuck you want to say. Great. It's cool Fantastic. with us at Recode Media. Right. It's an adult podcast. I love talking to adults. My kids are sometimes on it. Okay, well that's but fine. They don't listen. They're they're getting older. You are you are swimming against the stream, yes. swimming upstream, because you are not only not putting up a paywall or asking people for subscription fees for yeah. your for your website, um, you are deliberately not trying to build a giant website. Mm-hmm. The strategies today are either charge and or do a giant scale website. You're saying, I kind of want to be boutique, niche, couple million uniques. Yeah, well, um, maybe a little bit more than a couple, but but yeah, but not like. Hundreds, not of mega, not mega millions. So, yeah, you're what you're batting against two kinds of conventional wisdom. You either need massive scale or you need to charge customers. You're doing neither. Yeah, how's that going to work? Um, so we monetize about nine to ten times higher per user than most publishers. Our typical deal size is six figures with advertisers. We create, we build a product, a a platform that lets us do really creative, beautiful advertising really quickly and easily. So it makes it a lot easier for a brand to, you know, brands love custom content. I don't know how much people listening to this know about this particular stuff, probably a lot. A lot because they're kind of nerdy. Right. They're nerds. They're media nerds. Like custom content is actually the thing that brands pay for, but banners is what they get because the internet model of advertising is so broken that we haven't figured out like what it's supposed to look like. So Google like 20 years ago was like, hey, like just do a lot of it, put a lot of it out there. It's pennies on the dollar, but if you have enough of it, it'll make you money. And we've just been doing that for like 25, 20, 25 years or whatever. So our model is like, do the stuff that is really good, do it in a scalable way, make it like easy to to create and show like that people are actually interacting with it, put it in a system that allows them to come to it naturally instead of in some weird alien way. Like most advertising on the internet is this looks like a post, but it's not actually a post. It's a trick. Or this is a box you have to chase. Or there's a thing over here you should check out because it's a really cool experience. Now click on this box and it'll take you there. Please Our, watch this video. Yeah, please. Oh, video appears 
it's playing. You're like, I guess I'll look at it. I don't know what it is. But I'm let's trying see to happens. turn it off, but meanwhile, this is going like, to count yeah, as you. It's like I'm trying. You know, there's a thing in I've the corner. I've gone to the bathroom. A video is playing. The internet advertising is very aggressive and often bad. And for the smartest, most most savvy of the consumers on the internet, they are blocking it or tuning it out or like avoiding places that have it altogether. Anyhow, so our stuff is like kind of part of a very holistic system. We built a totally different weird platform for content that doesn't even work like a normal website, really. It works more like Snapchat or Instagram. And so, yeah, it's just a very – so so I, I think me, I'm rambling now. But I'm going to – I'll, I'll yeah, pause you for a second. Sure. So your pitch is we're going to make really cool stuff people mm. like, the consumers like. The, well – One, yeah. right? Which most publishers would say they want to do. Sure. Two, we're going to create stuff that advertisers like. Yes. With, which, again, most publishers would say they're doing. Yeah. Three, we're not going to chase after a really big audience. Yeah. We don't want to be obscure, but we, we're not trying to get really big. And right. this is where you split off from most conventional publishing wisdom today. Yeah. It's one of the ways you're cut It's very easy to be big if you want to be. I mean, traffic is easy. Good traffic is hard. That's just the basic rule of the internet. And so to be big would be very simple. Like, I can write a lot of Avengers Infinity War posts and what time I, is Avengers if, Infinity, if I, Infinity Well, War. that's the that's the easy stuff, but you can go another level, yeah. which is like takes about Avengers Infinity War. And like and actually like in defense, like our a culture editor uh, showed me a piece today that he wrote about just comic book movies in general. I wouldn't say it's an Avengers Infinity War take, but it's in that world. Do but, you know that today you could write about Avengers Infinity War plus Fortnite because they are combined? Yeah, I hear there's a thing. huge mashup that is You just, could write ten stories about that. Well it's just like so so those stories are there was a period on the internet, I'll frame this a little bit. There's a period on the internet when if you were writing a story about something and you wanted to reference like you wanted to research that topic and reference something that had been previously written on it you might go there's a certain number of sources you might find like for instance the verge or let's say engadget before it would have certain stories that no other website would have it would be like about like some weird detail about the new iPhone. Only Engadget would have that story. Maybe Gizmodo, there were a couple of others, but not a ton. Because they were right? enthusiasts who they were enthusiasts and, and very and were writing for a very specific audience. And so you'd have to go to those places. Now, if I like need a story for research, if there's any possible topic on any possible thing that's happened, like any specific thing that's happened, if you Google, you just find like dozens, if not hundreds of sources for that story. So you can just pick and choose whichever one fits. Like, oh, this this CNN story is good. And then right. I'll link to CBS for this other story. Com, which used to be a bro site and yeah. I guess still is, but yeah. their new specialty is, is mining SEO. So if you type in Michael Cohen, heavy.com will, will tell you who Michael Cohen is. They have is. Uh, also, yeah. Super weird. I, I, I tweeted the other day, um, everything wrong with the internet in one screenshot. And it was a screen grab of, so I saw all of these stories. There's this um, apparently webs. Okay, a spoiler alert for, we're talking about Avengers, spoiler alert. Apparently Thanos kills a bunch of people in uh, Infinity War. And anyhow, there's a website that will tell you if you got hypothetically would have been killed by Thanos. And I saw stories about it, like dozens and dozens of stories about it. And then I saw this thing that was like from NorthJersey.com. Thanos is an internet sensation. Did you die in his uh, yeah. cataclysmic event or whatever? And it's like, why is NorthJersey.com writing about whether or not Thanos killed you? I guess maybe he's like, they're like people in North Jersey. I suppose there's a tangential like link there. So but. I have I've written what time is Super Bowl posts. I've written about people <laughs> yeah. writing about what yeah. time is Super Bowl posts. And you simultaneously feel icky doing yeah. it. And you yeah. go, you know what? If someone wants to know what time the Super Bowl is and I tell them, What's so wrong with that? You can argue that it's not the best use of my time in yeah. particular, but whatever. I'm, I did it. Right. It wasn't hard. What's the problem with that? So uh, it's fine if you want to do it. I don't want to spend my life making shit. You know, I don't want to spend my life writing what time is the Super Bowl because I my days and hours are very valuable. And I think that— It'd be a bad way for me to spend my life doing it, and frankly, that should be automated and blah, 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 blah. And if blah, no one but, else did it, then I would be happy to jump in. Right. But So what I was saying is that that good traffic is hard. Bad traffic is easy. Traffic is easy. Like, you can buy it if you want. You can just—like, I could have taken my seed round and just spent it all on traffic, and I could have told you I have 20 million uniques. Like, that would be no problem. Um what is difficult is to get like the right people to the right story. And that's basically what we try to do. And it is, um, and we think, I think there's a higher value in that. I think there's a higher value in the stories that we tell, the way that we tell them. And that I think that they naturally attract an audience and we have data to what support What happens this. when you go to the, the ad world and you go, I, I don't have big traffic. I have great traffic. I have really smart people. I have well-educated, attractive people who want to spend money on your product. And they go, great. But I want 10 times more of those. Yeah. Um, and so-and-so says I can get them. And by the way, so-and-so down the street from him says, 
I can get them without even going to a web website. I yeah. can just do it programmatically through Google, Facebook, et cetera. I mean, there's definitely arguments against our uh, premise, and some of them may be appealing to some advertisers. I think increasingly what has been sold to, uh, to brands and agencies as the magic solve to reach their audience is tr less and less true. I think um, we see that with in many ways with what is happening with Facebook right now. We've seen it with programmatic and there's like brand safety stuff and there's viewability stuff. I mean, banner ads, banner impressions are really, I think all in the long run are much, much less valuable. There's certainly a scale game to be had there if you're Yahoo or maybe Buzzfeed or who, I mean, there are big, big players that can make a lot of money on that. Just, a, just, you know, pure scale. But I think, so to answer your question, not every advertiser wants will advertise with us, but there's some really good yeah. ones who will. You know, brands like McAllen and Cadillac and you know Mailchimp and Samsung, and there's a you know big, you know big list of of folks that are blue chip smart brands that want to speak to an audience really directly. Here's one of the key differences because we built this platform and this different ad platform, and literally our our stuff works differently. We this is really like in the nuts and bolts, but. On custom content, it's very hard to get people to look at it. We actually have more views of custom content than some of the biggest publishers in the world. Like we can do millions of views on a piece of custom content where a lot of larger publishers that have 20, 40, 50 million uniques will struggle to do 100,000. All right, you got me. How does that work? Because you're, again, a small website. So how are you getting more views for the same content than the So people publisher? see our, the way people get through content on our website is like by swiping through stories yeah. and you naturally hit full screen custom content ads when you're doing that. And often people engage with them. They tend to engage pretty deeply and they just show up a lot more. They're much more visible. They're like, when you think about ads on Snapchat or ads on Instagram, same idea, right? Okay, but it's not like you're pushing out your ad format somewhere else. It's not, you're not creating ads that live on another site. No, that's right. More I'm saying on platform. Yeah. So that's like an interesting thing to talk about when you speak to companies that brands and agencies that are trying to advertise to these like really good audiences they want. Like, you know, I think an interesting one is McAllen did a, did a, um, a campaign with us and they're like, look, there's a few million people in America. They wanted to sell a bot bottle of scotch. It's $300, you know? They're like, there's a few million people that we think are even going to think about buying this kind of thing. And like, it's very hard to reach that. How do you reach those people directly? And how do you tell them a brand story? How do you tell them your story? And so there's a, there was a really interesting overlap, like our demo and their demo met met really nicely. When one of my former co-workers wrote about you launching the site, he referenced Monocle, yes. which is a magazine so fancy I've never read it. Mm. I just know about it. Are you, so you're scared of, you know, you buy it. I'm, I'm afraid that I might buy a $300 scotch after I, after I pick it up. But the idea was this is kind of a niche product and, yeah. that, and that works. It attracts a certain kind of, of, of advertiser, which again, I, see, I get that as a physical product. It seems like in digital world, yeah. that tends to not work. Conceptually, it's a good idea. Also, conceptually, you can usually get people to sort of try a new thing, yeah. whether it's a new ad format or yeah. whatever, and they'll put some of their experimental money into it, and the trick is getting them back. You're here today, yeah. in part because you just announced you raised more money. We did. So that's an indicator it's working, right? Yeah. I mean, it's an up, don't throw it's more an up money round. It we, we were, you know, we're, we have a new valuation. I mean, it's like, you know, th that is an indicator. It's an indicator also that we have really great investors who support a different idea about media. I mean, it's, it, you know, there is a, we're still playing, this is a crazy game. I mean, what we're doing is insane. Like what we're doing is not normal for sure. Like we're definitely, like you said, against the grain, um, but it is working. I mean, we've been closing some really significant deals. We've just built out, like we've hired a bunch of new people on the revenue side because we have an influx of proposals that we need to deal with and people who are interested in advertising with us. And, you know, the Monocle comparison is interesting only because Monocle built a very strong brand on not every single person. They built a really strong brand and a valuable one on focusing on just telling a certain kind of story to a certain kind of person. Now, I'm not saying that those are our people people necessarily. I think Monocle has a different audience than the one that we're aiming at. But there is, like, for instance, their audience is much less savvy when it comes to technology and the internet than our audience is. Would be a really interesting differentiator there. But like but the main idea that you're not the giant restaurant, you're the, and you don't aspire to be, and you don't aspire to be. I want to be TGI Fridays. You want to be the 12-seat cool David Chang thing or maybe uh, a more profitable version of that. Yeah, and yes, and that there probably are a bunch of those that should exist in the world, not just one of them. And that is the long-term plan, which is like, look, I mean, it's basically like I think that there is something that no one has really figured out yet, which is what? how do you build – what is it – I love the New Yorker and I love a lot of the Condé Nast brands, but nobody's figured out how to build brands like that in the 21st century in digital. And I think that we actually have some of the raw materials 
really like figured out. And, and again, that, a subscription costs how much? So subscription, I mean, here's wait, the wait, way. wait, wait. I'm just leading in. You're going to say it's free, Peter. Yeah. And I'm going to say, just like this podcast, because this podcast is brought to you by fine sponsors. We're going to hear from them in I a minute. I can't wait to hear from them. So look, we're no, no, no. We're really going to. Oh, go you need to get right yeah, now, yeah, right yeah. now. So you're going to help me segue to that. <laughs> okay, great. We'll be back here in a minute with Outline CEO Josh Topolsky. Here's a treat for you. It's my friend and colleague, Kara Swisher, with a special interview from our advertising partner, HBO's Silicon Valley. Today's show is brought to you by HBO, and today in the red chair is Russ Hanneman. He's one of Silicon Valley's most notorious investors, and he's recently emerged as an aggressive player in the cryptocurrency market. Welcome to the podcast, Russ. Thank you, Kara, and you're welcome, by the way. Uh, For what exactly? What do you mean, for what? I I basically invented the podcast. (laughs) For what? You invented the podcast? I put radio on the internet. That sounds like a fucking podcast to me. Not that I'm making shit off it. That actually brings me to my first question. The standard internet funding and sales models have served you pretty well over the years. But now you're jumping feet first into ICOs. Why? Kara, this town is filled with assholes getting rich off crypto by doing jack. The Winklevoss twins put in some loose change five years ago. Now they're Bitcoin billionaires. So yeah, I'll buy a ticket for that fucking ride. You don't feel like you've already missed getting in on the ground floor? If I could change the past, I, I wouldn't have a kid at home right now snorting up my ADHD meds. I can only focus on the future. H-O-D-L, bitches. So I'm hearing you already have taken 36 companies to ICO. How have you fared so far? Well, you know, I'll be honest, Kara. It's been down, you know? It's been up. It's, it's been mostly down. You know, 35 of them have, you know, fucking tanked. 35 out of 36. What happened? I mean, this is, this is the game, all right? First, it's the SEC. Then it's one of your founders running away with your cash. Then it's a bunch of fucking hackers deciding that instead of edging in their basements that afternoon, they're going to come after your blockchain. Then one of your CEOs dies like a pussy. Anyway, listen, I'd rather focus on my successes. My success. One of them worked. And what was your ROI on the one that worked? What, radio on internet? No, return on investment. Return on investment, yeah, I know. It's 300M, all right? That's a million. And it's on some thumb drive in the middle of a landfill. My boys are on it, though. You ever lose a drive with a ton of crypto on it? No, Russ, I haven't. Yeah, you have. Uh, no. But thanks for coming on the show, and good luck with that thumb drive. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. Today's show is also brought to you by IBM. We live in a world that's creating AI-enabled everything, a world with more IoT devices than people. Today, technology has never been smarter. But smart only matters when you put it to work where it matters. When we put smart to work, we can help save species, increase crop yields, and make progress, not just for a few of us, for all of us. So let's get to it. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. I'm back here with Josh Topolsky talking about underwear. Okay. And also the outline. As you can hear from that last smooth segue we did, this is not a subscription business Josh is running. Everyone else except for most of my colleagues here at Vox Media, I think all of them at Vox Media, all, all the Vox Media properties are free. That's true. Everyone else in media is either put up a paywall, is about to put up a paywall. They're not putting up a paywall. They're calling it a membership model. Some, yeah, everybody some else in media did a, a Facebook video yep. play when Facebook said jump. Listen, I talked There's to There's a version of this business that works great. Right? I talked to a lot of VCs when I was raising money both for both rounds, yeah. and they were like, isn't it going to be all about subscriptions? And whenever I hear anybody say, isn't it going to be all about X? I know that that is definitely not the thing. Just like people said, it's all about video now, isn't it? It's just all about video. Just like people said, like, well, if it's not all about Facebook, there is no, like, one-size-fits-all solution to this problem. Like, And I think one of the big problems is that everybody goes, like, paywall, like, yeah, we should have one of those. Why don't we do it? It's like, there is a, there is a version of the outline maybe in the future, like, I could imagine going, like, look, you guys have been reading this a while. We've been doing this thing a while. Like, is there a component, some piece of this that's worth charging money for? Like, I'm open to the idea of like asking for money from people, yeah. but I don't think we have, I think there's like an unapproached opportunity in advertising that is, has been like bungled for literally for 20 years by, by most people in this industry. Uh, and I think that good advertising is good. And when it works, it's great. Like, also, we have to prove that we're worth spending money on. I'm not going to, like, come out of the gate and tell you that you should give me, you know, 
$100 a year because I promise you it's going to be perfect. It's going to be awesome. Trust me. That part I get. There is a line. There's a lot of smart people have come through here talking about their subscription model. It's become that kind of podcast. Um, And there is a line of of argument that I don't quite get. Nick Thompson from from Wired. Oh, yeah. Can talk about his? Jessica uh, Lesson. From has, Condé Nast? From Condé Nast. Oh, it's weird they'd go to subscription model. Jessica Lesson. Okay, has a, trade, a, very, a trade publication? But, yeah, it's but, weird they'd use but, a subscription model for a trade there, publication. There's an argument they make that says, hey, if you if you have a subscription business, you're automatically aligning yourself with the reader instead of the advertiser. There's a Ev Williams version of this on Medium. Oh, Ev Williams. Yeah, his business is, that's a perfect business where he doesn't need ads at all, and he definitely gave it the old college try on doing an ad model. He did it a bunch. We can have a did different episode. He, he ran banners. He ran banners. I'd love to debate Ev about the future of ad, the ad business. By the way, I think a lot of ads suck and are very bad. I agree with those people. Right. So th- this is where I'm getting at, which is it seems like there should be a middle ground that says subscriptions can work for some kind of products and ads ought to work for some kind of products. I don't see, and maybe this is, I guess, your point. I don't really see ads working generally very well on the internet. They seem to, frankly, work better on TV. These people are making movies that are designed to capture my attention, and they realize. If they're not good, I'm going to walk away. Right. Imagine if you, instead of putting a television ad in between segments of a TV show, you put a magazine ad on TV. Imagine if the ad for Budweiser was not an an amazing 30-second story about how Budweiser is going to make you cooler and and more attractive, but was a 30-second shot of a magazine ad. That's basically advertising on the internet. It's probably actually, that's actually better than advertising on the internet. That is what most advertising on the internet is. It's like people built the Model T and they're like, that's as good as a car is ever going to get. And now they're like, we need to invent some kind of plane or something. Like this is never going to work. It's like, now there's a Tesla version of this that's really awesome. Like, but nobody seems to be working on the Tesla. They also need to be doing like a different, they're like painting the Model T different colors. I don't know if this analogy makes any sense, if this metaphor makes any sense. The TV ad works because it's good for TV. The magazine ad works because it's good for magazines. You know what Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook to some degree and Pinterest figured out? There's an internet ad that works really well. It just isn't the box that is on every website. And like figuring that out is like the key to unlocking what advertising should be on the internet and the key to unlocking what good advertising looks like. And very few people have done it well. And almost no one, I would say, zero publications have built a system that is holistically like from the ground up designed around the marriage of both like interesting digital first content, interesting digital first advertising. We, we reference this at the top of the podcast. You used to work at The Verge slash Fox Media. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, you worked at Engadget. Those are both sort of scale advertising plays. Then you went to Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that. Yeah. How much of what you're doing today is a reaction to what you did at those sites versus this is what I always wanted to build. I just could never do it. Mm. I mean, look, we started Vox Media. I, I, you know, I'll be very blunt. I don't think our plan at Vox Media the in the early days when we were building things like The Verge and when we were asking Ezra and Melissa and uh, Matt to come and do Vox.com and when we brought in people to do Polygon and asked them to build something, we weren't like, we're going to just get every single person that could possibly be on the internet to look at our stuff. It was not about scale. It was about like, what's a really good product that we can create first and foremost, right? And I think that that ethos runs pretty deep in what Vox has built. But I also think Vox got into a place where it had to compete with the buzzfeeds of the world in terms of size. Because when, it, when you get into like scale ad deals predicated on boxes, on pages, it's very hard to not say, I can offer you 30 million, 50 million, 100 million X of whatever product exists, you know? So, so that certainly informs some of how I think going to Bloomberg was partly my reaction to some of the stuff that we were doing here, which was like scaling up really rapidly. And yep. I don't know with like as, as much focus as I would have preferred. You know, like certainly, but I'm a pain in the ass. I also probably was being annoying about things that I wanted to do. And those aren't always the perfect idea. Nodding my head. You know, Um, but... But I went to Bloomberg partially because they were like, we don't care about getting all the people. We want this very specific audience. Because we, we're, want to build, we, 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 we have mint a money. funnel of money. Yeah, they're like, we don't care. And we want you to come here and build all these exciting new now brands. Now they're doing a paywall. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's, yeah, that's good stuff. Um, I'm excited about their paywall. Um, they have a paywall product. It's called the Terminal. Yeah. If you want the Bloomberg paywall product, I suggest you get the Terminal. It rips. Um, so... Anyhow, so I went there to, to kind of do brands at Bloomberg with the same sort of underlying concept, which is like make something really radical for the web, for digital audiences, and don't worry about trying to serve every single person. Um, and yeah, I think that the outline and independent media, which is the parent company of, of the outline, 
is a reaction and also just a part of like learning what it is I want to be doing with my life and what I don't want to be doing. Let's go back in time. Okay. You have the first Wikipedia entry I've seen. I'm sure there are many more uh, where there's a reference uh, that if you click on the link, eventually gets you to a birth notice, like the Pittsburgh Jewish Gazette. Is that true? Yeah. Really? Like you're acting like you haven't seen your Wikipedia. I mean, that sounds like, I'm trying to think if that's like, is that really on the Wikipedia page? Yeah. Okay. The first link. Okay. Then eventually get to a PDF. That's interesting. It's like page thirty-eight. Mm. I do deep research. Um, but you Who put that there. It had to be my mother. It's. I think it's you, Josh. Mm. A lot of people come in here, and they have been in media all their lives. They've been in publishing all their lives. That's not your story, right? That's right. So you started off doing what? Uh, I was born in Pittsburgh. Yes. Uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, beautiful town. Um, I started off. I mean, my first. I mean, I've done a bunch of stuff, but like I had a career as a musician and a music producer for, you know, about a decade before, maybe a little bit less than a decade uh, before I started getting into writing. I so started you, writing you're, as you're like pro- a, You're a professional musician slash producer yeah, person in Brooklyn. That's correct. Uh, and before Brooklyn, I, I, I did it in Pittsburgh and then I moved to Philadelphia for a couple of years. And then I moved to Brooklyn. Let me go to the fifth borough. I, I made like dance records for a while. I had a top 40 hit in the UK. Uh, like just random stuff. I went around the world DJing, uh, and then what, what's I, the name of the Jack Topolsky Top Forty UK hit? The it's so seems so horrible now. This is from 1998 or something, or no, it was 2000. I think was the year that it was. It's called Pistol Whip, um, right. which was meant to emote the how the song made you feel, not the actual act of pistol whipping people. Please don't. Please we, don't yeah, do we're going to try. It's to, like a nine-minute trance to, song. With we're going to we're gonna try to call it up for the end of this. It's a nine-minute trance song that has a completely like badass build up in the middle of it. But right. anyhow, um, so so I did that for a while. My brother and I made music together. We had a studio in Brooklyn. Um, we recorded bands like Chick 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 and like Professor Murr, all these like indie bands. And from were you Brooklyn. someone who aspired to write or thought it'd be fun? Um, I've done for some. I've done some writing when I was younger for myself. I did some. Um, writing for music magazines, like reviews, like record reviews. Yeah. And then I, look, I'm just a nerd. I was a huge nerd. And Engadget had an open call for writers and Engadget at AOL. And I was like, this would be fun to do. Like once in a while, I like, write some stuff about gadgets. This is back when Engadget and Gizmodo have surpassed or, or replaced popular science and popular mechanics and, and all the yeah. other sort of nerd blogs and then or nerd publishing businesses and gotten much this was bigger. Like, this was in the age of blogs being still like a second-class citizen. Like, you couldn't... The Engadget wasn't invited to Apple events. Right. Like, we were not invited and not liked. And also Apple was a marginal company at that point, too. Apple was... Well, they were the iPod company at that point. I mean, they were not totally marginal, but they but, weren't like they are now. Right. They're not the most, they're not the most valuable company in the world. So, yeah, so I started writing part-time for Engadget, and then I got obsessed with it, and then I took a full-time job there. And then I uh, became the editor-in-chief a year later. And then I took the entire team. <laughs> we went and started The Verge. No, no, no. There, I, I know the Vox Media corporate history. You left Engadget and yeah. went to do your own thing and mm. then magically reappeared mm. because mm. there couldn't be any poaching. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Uh, that sounds exactly, that's, that's, that's that exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> one thing I, I, I've noticed about your career uh, at The Verge, and you can see uh, traces of it, traces, more than traces of it all over Vox Media, and then your work at Bloomberg and out the outline, super, super design heavy. You're very, you care a lot about the way things look. You like them to look different than the way things look on the internet. Yeah. It's sort of silly for me to describe it. You can just go to theoutline.com and check it out. Yeah. Um, while you were at Bloomberg, you guys did crazy, weird presentations. Yeah. Um, why Why is, and, and, and this is beyond just making it look good, right? Like you want it to look kind of, whoa, what's I'm not expecting that on my browser. Um, why, why is that important to you? So, I mean, th- the way things look is important, just period, to me. Like, I'm aesthetically interested in things. Like, I um, am... Design matters. Design, like, the visceral way we see something and understand what it's communicating before we know what it is is, like, I think very valuable. I also think that the web is a very... has been a traditionally very... at least in media, an not a very expressive place. Utilitarian. Yeah, just, uh, look, we've been recreating. I actually have a slide in my old, my original uh, deck from when I did my seed round of snippets of front pages from a paper from the 1900 to BuzzFeed News in 2016. And you, they literally, the design is basically the same idea. It's like very unoriginal, very uninspiring and replicating something that is created on a printing press, which seems insane. Like the web and the internet and digital technology and mobile phones have these incredible capabilities to be more than 
black text on a white background. And we just, I don't think we do enough of that. And I think that for human beings, and I think as like things like Instagram and Snapchat have taught us, even like Tinder, when you think about how people interact physically with the product of Tinder, like the visuals of it, the way it makes you feel before you even know what it is you're doing matters to to the overall impression of the thing. And yeah, so, again, I think about print magazines and, and there's still these stores, a handful of them left in, this, in the city where if you go, and especially if you see like the European magazines, they're still trying out weird designs and typefaces if the American ones are pretty similar. Yeah. Uh, whereas the web, things generally look the same, yeah. um, goes in and out of style. Um, but, but right now it seems like more than ever, people want stuff that sort of is easy to read. It's going to be on their phone. There's really yeah. not a lot of room for design. Um, yeah, it's but probably going to more live. room for design. A little bit, but also, and then, and then it's sort of mechanically the way stuff gets pushed out now, if it has to go to Facebook and Apple News and wherever else, I mean, yeah, what a, a little what different. A criminal, what a criminal act to let a bunch of tech companies that don't give a shit about storytelling dictate how stories should be told. And their argument is we want stuff to be clear and easy and you should read it. I mean, some things should be clear and easy and some things shouldn't. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like using the same shot for every movie. Like, why does Star Wars open with one shot and... Uh, you know, uh, Citizen Kane opens with a different one. Why don't they just use the same framing? I mean, the you know, th this is like, to me, like, actually, that gets under my skin more than almost anything is the idea that, like, Facebook has a better idea about how to tell a story. Like, that it can be distributed, that's wonderful. But, like, what are you serving by distributing it in this, like, basic black and white way? You know, I think, like, you're serving Facebook's needs, you're not serving the needs of the story necessarily. Now, some stories, by the way, should be a bunch of text. But some shouldn't. Some should be other things. And I think if Snapchat has demonstrated anything, it's that there's an opportunity to do different kinds of storytelling. And sure, but then Snapchat has a format, right? Their format looks radically different than a story on Facebook. I mean, but eventually kind of. it's kind of a format. You kind of swipe up. It kind of all looks the same eventually. I mean, you know, but that's getting into their groove is not, doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only way to use that space. I mean, I think Snapchat, it like, has asked publishers to do things over and over and over again. And by doing that, you form like repetitive sort of um, habits and that's where you end up with like a style. But the space is actually wide open. You can kind of do anything you want inside of a snap. And I'd increasingly like to see people be able to do kind of whatever they want inside of a story. Do you, does that, is that something, if you're heart of hearts, late at night, looking at yourself in the mirror or something. Which I do. I get up in the middle of the night and look at myself in the mirror all the is time. That, is that focus on design something that gives you pleasure or do you think this is genuinely something that, that the consumer wants and responds to and, they, and they're actually responding to the, the font weight you're used on, on this layout? I think it's both. I think that, I think that you have to tell somebody who you are in a lot of different ways. You have to tell somebody what a story is in a lot of different ways. And I think that happens through design. It doesn't always happen perfectly. And it sometimes happens in a way that is, uh, is annoying to some readers or to some viewers. Um, it is very pleasurable to do things that are designed. Like, I like that. But also, I think that there's an importance to having design be an element of storytelling. And some stories don't need it at all. And some stories need it a lot. Uh, I do think that there's a reaction to it. I think if the outline had launched on a WordPress blog with WordPress style posts, I think it would be a lot. Their people would not have paid as much attention to us as they did at the beginning. So for you, it's very it's part of the marketing, right? It's part of the business plan. We want to stand out. Well, yeah. Like, and who are you? And what like do, can you emote who you are yeah. through your visuals? Like, I think that's important. We did that with the Virgin. A lot of the brands at Vox was a big part of like figuring. That. I mean, I remember building, you know, seeing the, the system come together for Polygon and yeah. realizing like this is an idea. It's very specific. You know Polygon very clearly. You could see it in a row of other video game yeah. publications or game publications. I think you know, since like, you've gone, that is the pendulum has switched, switched back to, eh, these are kind of kind of look the same. And, sure. and it might really upset the editors of various publications that they're, that uh, publication X looks like publication Y. But if you're a reader publication Y, you're probably not reading X. Also, you probably don't care. You know, this is a, if you're... <sighs> I don't want to, and this is, by the way, in no way meant to, to shit talk Vox, but Vox certainly engages on, on, charge you for this water. on some publications, like, you know, or on all the publications, there is a certain engagement of like, there's content people want, and like the, what time is the Super Bowl is actually something that historically SB Nation did and got a bunch of good search traffic on because they did like, what time is the Super Bowl, which is totally fine. And again, like, I think there's like, a, a, there's actually utility to it. If it's a if it's a thing that's just meant to be easily shareable and you just need to find it in search and it's not like the story itself, like again, there's a hundred versions of it and you've got one of them. There's lots of publications that works for you know, like what we do is not for everybody, like very in, in yeah. a very literal way. Like what the outline is doing and what we will do with independent media brands, 
you know, it's just is not not everybody's going to be going to need it or want it. Like that's both from a consumer standpoint and from a from like an kind of editorial and business standpoint. I think about this a lot. Um, and one of the analogies I think about is when you listen to music with a professional musician or at least a real serious musician, music enthusiast and you're listening to a song, you both like the song. person who doesn't really know anything about music goes, I like this song. And they enjoy the song. They enjoy it 100%. Right. And the person who's an enthusiast or professional goes, and I also really like the way those drums are recorded or right. the fills, et cetera. Neither is wrong. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's many more people who just like the song. But what's actually interesting is what you just said is like um, the way the song was created matters to both people. One person listening recognizes the differences and one person just knows the song fucking rules. And I think that like the way the song is produced has a huge influence on how you feel about a song. But, like, not everybody knows that. But that's actually the point of design. Design doesn't have to be, you don't have to think about it. You have to feel something when you see it. Like, the point of design is, like, you're communicating, you're communicating something through art, essentially, right? Design, because if design were purely art, like, then communication is different. It's like you can kind of get what you get out of it like you do from a, from a great painting. Design is specific in the sense that it's got a utilitarian purpose, which is communicate these ideas. But there are a bunch of different ways to communicate the ideas, and communicating them differently makes you feel different things when you come to them. But some of this is also style and, and what's what people, what a general, what a class of people who create stuff are into at the moment, right? Which is why if you listen to music from the 70s, it's very produced, yeah. right? You get to prog rock and you get to very ornate stuff, and then yeah. the counter-reaction is, is punk, right? Which is super stripped down and deliberately has no frills around it and goes back and forth. And yeah. I assume there's a version of that with, with media. Wow, this has gotten... I mean, there's an argument. High, right? There's an argument that like what we do as a style is called is brutalist web design, which I don't actually subscribe to. I don't think it's what we do because brutalism is actually quite. A, it's an architectural term and it's quite torn down and, and it's like raw. Structure. By the way, you've, you've got you've got a post on your site today. Yeah, that goes in some of these directions. I literally couldn't understand. Which one is it's it? It's about. It's about. I think it's about Kanye. It oh, is about Kanye. No, I mentioned use that much Pinterest. Yeah, yeah so I, I understood the headline, and then I literally yeah. couldn't comprehend this. Yeah, but like, look, so so anyhow, that the um, yeah things go in cycles. But I think for us, like for me personally, but also just generally speaking, building a design language that is that is differentiated is important. I think that there is actually a large amount of the audience that responds to that, but also giving ourselves a design language and tools to manipulate things within that language lets us do things that we couldn't do without it, right? And so. Like we build a platform to have design be a part of story making, and that is very important to sometimes to the stories that we tell. You know, did you think we were going to have this conversation when we started today? I I had no notion whatsoever about what we were going to talk about, except I thought it was going to be about media. We'll get there. No, I mean we're talking. We're about, doing it. We're definitely talking about it. I mean, I, I love this conversation. I All mean, right. does design matter? I think is what you're asking. Yeah. Yes. It think, does. think about that and for you a know, second. You know it does. We're going to have a native advertisement now. All right. Which you can or cannot participate in. It's okay. your choice, Josh okay. Dabolsky, CEO of the Outline. Yeah. Josh, do I, do I look comfortable to you? Um, I mean, do you want my honest answer? Yeah. Very comfortable. I feel very comfortable. You know what? Why? I'm wearing Mac Weldon socks. Oh, Mac Weldon makes socks? They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. Wow. I am a longtime Mac Weldon fan. I've bought them with my own money, and then they became sponsors of this very show. You could wear an entire Mac Weldon outfit if you wanted. Yeah, yeah it'd be expensive. Well, but, 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 pay, but, 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 if you want a discount on this fine Mac Weldon stuff, go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. Can you imagine not liking Mac Weldon products? Um, yes, I can, but uh, I. But that would be you go to. You should go to prison if you don't like. Mac if that Weldon weird products. thing happened and you ordered something from MacWeldon.com and you didn't like it, you know what you do? You you sent to prison because nobody should dislike MacWeldon. Much products. better than that. You just say, "Hey, Mac Weldon, I don't like what you sent me. I'm going to hang on to it. Send me my money back. They you just will keep do it. it. They will do it. Huh. Seems wasteful, but that's fine. Look, we've been, they've been advertising this for two years, and obviously you, it works. It's I a great business give, model. I hope you take that. If you do that. I hope you give it to someone who needs some underwear or socks. Keep the underwear. Don't share your underwear. Well, I'll wash them and then give them away to someone in need. They're going to love this ad. Go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. You will get 20% off. That is good for you. It is also good for me, the person who is reading this ad for you. Go to MacWeldon.com. Promo code RECODE. Today's show is also brought to you by HBO. I'm not going to tell you about HBO, though. Kara Swisher is going to tell you all about HBO in Silicon Valley right now. 
Wired Magazine says HBO's Silicon Valley captures all the dick moves and dick jokes. I would agree with that, and I enjoy them quite a bit. It happens to be eerily timely as startup founder Richard Hendricks pivots this season to launch a decentralized internet free of ads and data tracking. It turns out that the road to an autonomous peer-to-peer network, whatever that means, is paved with misguided car purchases, stealth acquisitions of Pizza App, and a lot of public puking, as well as an ICO. No one said launching a startup was easy. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. We're back here with Josh Topolsky. He's got more on his mind. Um, is there something you want to get off your chest, Josh, since we're here? No, I'm definitely getting stuff off my chest. No, I'm I'm excited and enjoying this conversation. I I didn't think we'd go as deep on design, and I'm ex- I'm happy to talk about. You that. are a very designy guy, and I will say that um, I'm. Yeah, three years ago. Uh, Vox bought Recode about three years ago. We got here. And to go from an organization that had been working on WordPress and variants of it and had zero interest in design, um, really most parts of web, other than just typing stories and putting them there, and getting to Vox, which at the time was very, 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 very design-oriented. I think less so now. Mm. I'm sure my coworkers would argue with me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really interesting experience. Yeah, I... Uh I mean, but, you know, think about Recode for a second. Like, look, you have to balance, like, necessity, right? I mean, there—I don't know the Recode. There's a ton of stories that—it should look nice. Yeah. But there's—you know, Recode is is very—you'll forgive me for saying it this way, but it's a kind of a trade publication in the sense that mm-hmm. it is very specifically focused on a narrow area of, of business, you know, media and the tech world. And, you know, there's stuff, kind of satellites around that. It, it's, it's not like you guys are, are rolling out, like, big and— ambitious, like, uh, features that require, you know, photography and I'm not saying you're not doing big, yeah, ambitious no, no, features, no, but, we, we, but I, I will say visual. that's, that's, that's where like, we've tried it a few times and gone, Oh, we haven't really figured this out. Yeah. And, but that's not why we're not doing them. But uh, yeah, I know I'm saying, yeah. but I think that like, you know, day to day, there's a utilitarian nature to yeah. the design that really functions for recode because like you need to get information to people who are like sure. busy and need to read stuff. But also it's not like we thought about it. We just type stuff up on a WordPress blog and right. publish it and it went out. Right. But I mean, like, what, did you do? You think there's a need for more design on Recode? I'm not yeah, knocking Recode. But it's, but I read it's, it. I it's, love it. It's low on my list of things we need. Right, and I think it's probably low on the list of of things that it actually needs. We have an astonishingly popular newsletter yeah. because a bunch of our readers want to read our stories delivered to them via email. There you go. There's and no email, frills on it. They email is very low. You can do very few things with it. Yeah, So we're ha- and we're happy to deliver it that way. And yeah. occasionally someone says, hey, we should add a photo or some kind of thing on there. I'm like, that's fine, but not if it screws up the delivery of the words in any way. I mean, information's important. Like, you got to get it, you got to get people information, right? And there's, you can always make an argument that, like, just get me the, I wanted a text file of this. And there are sites that do it. They're like, make a text file of this article. And that's fine, like, if that's how you want to read things. I just, like... I love when stories actually have like a design element that that elevates the storytelling and takes me deeper into the story. And I think there's a lot of room for that in the, on the web and particularly on mobile that we haven't really well explored. What do you think of VR and AR and the next star? Is does that stuff appeal to you from a storytelling perspective? Yeah. I mean, look, the thing with with VR and AR and anything else that's like a hot new technology that somebody's telling uh, Condé Nast that they need to use. I mean, Condé Nast at the what, New Friends last year were like, we're doubling down on uh, VR, right? And New York Times did their thing and. There is no, again, it is never going to be, there is this awesome new thing and it is going to be the answer to all of your problems or it's going to be the answer to like what comes next. It is a component. If a story is best told in VR, you should tell it that way. If you get a story that can't be told any other way and that you feel strongly that that's the way to do it, you should have a mechanism to tell that story. Because part of me thinks, oh, that should really appeal to Josh because if you can play with text on a, on a, on a, you know, static screen, imagine what you could do with with immersive stuff. And yet I can think of a store, one story, maybe two that had been told with VR where I was like, this is a really amazing use of this thing. I needed this to see the story differently. And most are just like, isn't it cool that you can do this? And I don't think that's a good justification for telling a story uh, in that manner. You mentioned earlier that you can be difficult (laughs) by your own admission. Uh Um, Very difficult. um, And I'm going to read something here. Oh God. This is the New York Times, so oh. you know what it is. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know what's on my Wikipedia page. I don't know what the person in the New York Times wrote about me. This is when you were at Bloomberg. Um, there's a well-told anecdote, and everyone has told this anecdote, where you and Michael Bloomberg, owns the property, are having a discussion about what's going to happen with the web. Uh, Bloomberg says something to the effect of maybe we shouldn't have a website. 
Um, Topolsky responded sarcastically, making fun of the suggestion, according to three people with knowledge of the exchange, who spoke on condition of anonymity. Mm-hmm. Mr. Bloomberg, who often challenges subordinates provocative questions with provocative questions, has grown accustomed to deference, the people said. He was serious, and his relationship with Mr. Topolsky subsequently deteriorated, and then you left. Um, yeah. Did you realize when you when you sort of made fun of Michael Bloomberg in the room in front of the people that 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 was going to happen? I didn't make fun of him. And actually, look, there's a point in everyone's life uh, that you get to where you're in a room and and Mike Bloomberg is telling you something and and you disagree strongly with what he's telling you. And you have to ask you, you really have to look inside and say, am I going to argue with Mike Bloomberg? Because he's like the 10th richest man in the world, maybe ninth now. And your boss. And my boss. Um... And, you know, the answer is, yeah, I guess I'm going to argue with Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> For me, the answer is, I guess so, you know. And um, as, as you start that process. You know, dance like no does one's it go watching. Into, does it go into slow motion? You go, oh, no, I should have taken No, I mean, I, respond, I responded uh, honestly to, uh, uh, you know, without going into great detail, because I'm sure I'm probably violating some kind of yeah. NDA or whatever. You know, I responded honestly to, I, I thought, a point that was meant to be provocative but wasn't serious. And I responded uh, with a non-serious response, which is like, yeah that's a cool idea. You should do that. Like, go for it. Yeah. And, you know, the truth is we actually, that story tells a part of the story, but Mike and I actually had a really good and interesting relationship. I just think that uh, I went to Bloomberg to make something great for Bloomberg, where it Bloom, Mike Bloomberg's name is on everything. And it is like, ultimately, he will receive all the glory for making, for having those things made. But I went there with a mandate from Justin Smith and from Josh Tierengel and from Dan Doktoroff, who hired me they wanted me to do what I do best, which is build really great things in media on the internet. And I felt very strongly we were and doing that. Part of it was that Bloomberg wasn't hands-on then because he was, right? Yeah, and he then, wasn't and, there. And then I he mean, came back. And then he came back and, you know, he had to get acclimated. And that, by the way, was I'm sure for him it was like kind of a jarring transition. And he finds this mad scientist monkey around. Sh- yeah, I'm there. Josh Topolsky's there. He's like, what is going on with this guy? Um, and, uh, you know, but like that conversation was one of many where we had like very heated and I felt like ultimately valuable exchanges, but the reality was, you know, it was very clear that I, what I wanted to do and what Mike wanted to do were very different things. There were things that I could have done at Bloomberg, but it wouldn't have made me very happy. So that, that incident reported no. in the New York Times was, was not the thing that led to you leaving? I don't think so. I mean, we had a, there was a lot of stuff that, what led to me leaving, to be perfectly honest, was like the increasing feeling that those types of conversations were going to be the norm. Right. And for me, I didn't, I, I don't want to fight with people. I mean, even though I do often, my goal is to actually make stuff. Like I'm trying to make stuff. So I was like, look, I'm not going to do what I want to do here. You're not going to be happy with me because I'm going to say no to the things that you want to do. You don't want me to do the stuff that I want to do and vice versa. So what are we doing? Right. And so there were options there like... <laughs> You know, I look back at the different options. They were interesting. But all, for me, I was like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to go start my own business because I'm kind of tired of arguing with people about the way I think the business should be. So when you go out and you leave Bloomberg, and again, this is the New York Times writing about you and other people are writing about you and people who aren't writing about you are talking about you. Yes. Um, and so reputationally, you have a reputation as a difficult person. And I've talked to people who have actually given you money since then. Yeah. But when you go out to ask for money yeah. and you're the guy who makes cool things but also can be a giant pain in the ass, yeah. do you do you take that into account as you're going out to people with money and say, here's the deal? I know you've read about me. I know uh, you've heard about me. Yeah. But, or do you just go, here's the deal. I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, to be honest with you, it didn't. I didn't think about it that much until I started raising money and met some investors who were very interested in what I was doing, but were like, we hear you're insane and we want to find out if that's true or not. Not insane, but like we, you know, you, Close could, to be, that, yeah. you could be a handful. Um, and I think that, and, and, you know, without naming names, those people invested money into my business after talking to a lot of people about what I'm actually like to work with. And they were like, we actually heard a lot of really great things about you, which I was pleasantly surprised to hear. Um, and, after that, I've, you know, I, well, I mean, you know, it's hard, it's hard to like, I'm, I have no professional training in uh, management or in frankly, any of the things yeah. I'm doing, you know, I, I'm a high school dropout. So uh, I'm probably also emotionally not perfect. I would say like, I'm probably a little bit weird. And so I'm like on doing a lot of on the job training, doing things that are very strange, like 
But you're you're well into it now. Are there things yeah. you're doing now? I mean, how is how how are you as a manager different now than you were oh, three jobs ago at Engadget? Um, I micromanage less. I when I'm annoyed with here's one of the things that I realized about me that's bad management that I would never have understood unless somebody had actually brought it to my attention, and it, it actually happened when I was at Vox, which is I get. I can be very mad about something and then not give a shit about it five minutes later. Like, I could be like, this fucking thing is a nightmare. You need to fix it to you. And then I'll be like, I'm, that's going to be taken care of. I'm not worried about it at all. And I know that if it's well, you know, it's in good hands. The person who I'm like, this thing's a fucking nightmare. Take care it's of it. It's freaking is like, the fuck out. It's like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. Yeah. This is a terrible. What am I going to do? And I made no connection between like, because I'm like, oh, it's all fine. Like now that I have like expressed how I feel, um, so, you know, that's a thing that I've worked on. I don't think I have perfect, but like figuring out like what the right level of um, rage to express when like my rage doesn't mean anything. Like I'm, I don't, I'm like a grudge holder. It's like, I don't stay mad for very long. I don't even like things I'm mad about. I'm not even that real, really mad about. Like I just want them to be fixed. So like just figuring out like where, how other people perceive that has been a big deal. I micromanage less, probably not as much as I should, but like, you know, I've tried to, to, to correct that. And you know, look, I mean, the, the one thing that is definitely true is that uh, being an editor-in-chief or a CEO or whatever, the answer, the solution to all of your problems is to hire really good people and who are autonomous and let them do their thing and only occasionally, like, check in on them. Like, you know, talk to them and have good conversations, but don't babysit them because good people don't need babysitting. They need to just know what their mission is and go do it. Was there any thought either from you or from people who gave you money or were thinking about giving you money that, well, we'd like to work with you, Josh, but we'd like you to bring in a Cheryl or an Eric Schmidt or someone to yes, manage I was, stuff. They were you. like, can you bring in Cheryl Sandberg? And I was like, I got, she's busy. I'm going to call her up right now and see if she's available. Um, that didn't come up, but I think did you ever think about like, well, what if sure. I teamed I think up about with it every someone? Day. I think that? about it every day. I mean, I have great, you know, like my COO, Elias Rothblatt is really, really talented at figuring out like the business side of things and how to manage. Like I'm not, don't put me in a spreadsheet. Like I'm not going to be that useful. Like there are some CEOs who are very good. They'll crack open Excel and just go for it. That's not my thing. Um, you know, I've got really smart people around me. Uh, you know, I'll, but I think all the time, like, is there a person who could do this better than me? Maybe. The problem is that so many media companies have CEOs that are totally disconnected from the thing that they make. Like, it's easy to be a CEO who doesn't know how you make things. It's really hard to be a CEO, CEO who knows how things are made and to appreciate the pro, like the production process of making things and to think about that when you're making decisions about the business. And I think that's important. Like, there's a reason why I'm the editor-in-chief and the CEO. That's an unusual combination of roles, and that's by design. Because I think that when you abstract the business away from the things that the business makes, it can be really dangerous, particularly in media. Particularly when you have that question about, you know, ads, like, Who's, you know, what is the tail wagging the dog? You know, that you want to be really careful about like where do these things intersect and where should they be avoiding one another? And I think that to have insight into the process of making things and putting things out into the world and telling a story and like having a scoop that no one else has and knowing that you've got something that is very sensitive and you've got to be take great care with and knowing what it feels like to put that out into the world and to feel the feedback from the world on that thing as a CEO is highly informative. So you're pumped, as you can tell, if you're listening to this. You, I just had a diet, a, half a Diet Coke, so I'm feeling really good. You, you have a very specific point of view. You know what you want to make. Yeah. Um, and, and you know a lot about the media business. And so you know that one of the problems with a lot of these media companies is they are venture-backed. Yes. So it's not just they've taken money from investors. They've taken money from investors who want to get a 10x return. That in, in, There's some kind of scaling that has to happen. Yeah. And all these things that you care a lot about eventually are going to run up against the thing the investor cares about, which is getting 10 times their money back. Yes. So having known all that, why not try to figure out how to do this without taking venture money? Uh, I would have loved to. And in fact, my original conversations with investors were non-venture investor conversations. Um, early on, I actually came very close to doing a deal with somebody who was in the publishing world that was not a traditional venture uh, investor whatsoever. I think maybe it might have been mentioned in uh, a Recode article at some point, but that did not ultimately end up being the best deal for the business. And when I started to talk to, I mean, particularly like when I talked to RRE, who reached out to me after I wrote a um, kind of manifesto about the media industry and wanted to talk about RRE, who's invested in, who's our lead investor and has invested in BuzzFeed and yep. Tuffington Post and uh, Business Insider, lots of big scale businesses. They were very interested in, in having a conversation about what I thought was really important 
to build now. And that was very encouraging to me that there actually were VC investors out there who were not just looking for the 10x billion dollar valuation, but also also wanted to find something new inside of their investment. Right, so they're betting on you, but again, their job is to yeah. get a 10x return. And yeah. if they don't with you, they might still think you're a good person, but it will not be considered successful. So inevitably, it seems like you're going to have that conflict, that yeah. all these things that you care a lot about are eventually going to, even if it's the most well-meaning, grooviest VC ever, they're going to go, yeah. look, eventually we got to get a return here. So um, the outline is a year and five months old. We launched in December of 2016. Uh, I don't know if that math is quite right, but it's like a year and five months of being live. Um, we're in striking distance of profitability. I think this end of this year will be there. Uh, it's going to, you know, we're going to be close, but I think we can do it. Now, every media business is always like, we're going to be profitable this year. And like every year they're like, we got it. We're so close. I actually think, Run we, can, rate. I think we can get there. Um, we have some really interesting efficiencies in like how we do things, which means that uh, we built products with scalability in mind. Weirdly, as a company that is interested in insane scale, we also thought about scale. Like how do you actually make these things work over and over again for different teams in different ways? Um, so... We've taken a total of 10 and change million dollars in investment, which is not nothing. It's a ton of money. And it's every day I'm like, I can't believe that I actually raised this and much your money job for is a to business. deliver 100 million. And, and yeah, and I think that we will have a lot of flexibility going into 2019 with like how we decide to build the business and what 100, how you get to 100 million and beyond that. I think that there is another type of business that is not, yes. VC funding can be very destructive to businesses, but it can also be obviously very useful to businesses. What I'm trying to figure out the balance is like, what is the sane part, the sane way that you do this, right? Is there a way to be in just invested in enough that you have enough runway to build the thing you want to build that actually has lots of, can pay off in lots of different ways without having this huge burden of investment and like sort of endless growth and endless scale hanging over you? Because I think that's going to be then whatever. Because that is one of the answers, right? It's that it's one thing to raise 10 million, another thing to raise 100 or yeah. 200. Yeah. Is, but like look at all the companies that raise tens of millions or more, all the media companies. Right, that's what and, I'm saying. The pressure on them now, now they've yeah. got to get to billion-dollar publishing business, which is a difficult thing to do. I just think you, there is just, we the world is we're in a different place. Like we should consider like what we've built on the internet and think like, is there another way to do this? Is there a different kind of business? That's what we're basically trying to do. Is there a different and better in some ways business that doesn't serve everybody, but is actually quite valuable? Like that's the concept. And I think we have gotten there in some ways. We still have a lot of way to go to prove it out completely. But to me, it's a very exciting idea. Like what if it wasn't, what if Facebook didn't matter to you? Like in the long run, what if Facebook was just a part of something, a small part of something, and you actually had control of your business in a way that was sane and in a way that you felt um, like the things you did mattered to an audience, you know, and that it wasn't just you weren't just playing somebody else's game. That's a very exciting idea and that you could make money doing that and, and work with really good brands and talk to really smart, good people. You know, that's kind of exciting. Anyhow, so that was no, a, no, that was that was a, a ramble. Pause. No, no, I was going to say that's a very good way to go out. <laughs> I love going out Look, in a good we're way. 56 minutes into this. Yeah. You've well, hit the Hirshhorn level. Well, I have this clock over here, too. It turns out it's really good for me to see a clock. I can really time it up perfectly. But no, you look, you know, like I, I think it's just we're not in any way. It's a, we're not a sure thing yet. We're young. But I actually think I see a clear path to making it work. And that's really exciting because media needs something new right now. It needs help right now. Because I think if we leave it in the hands of Facebook and Google and Twitter... It's going to work out great. Come on. I think... I don't know. We've got to take, take back power. got to take back control. I was going to quote a rappler. I'm not going to do that. Um, Josh, this is great. I had fun. I hope you had fun. I love this. I hope you guys had fun listening. Thank you for listening. Before we go, one more time, tell someone about this show on the platform of your choice. You could do email. You can walk up to strangers on the street. Great when you tell me in person that you love my podcast. It's been happening. Uh, one of you said, I'm really enjoying you in audio form, which I, I took as a good backhanded compliment. Those are all great, but it's better when you tell someone else. So please do that. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. We don't have a paywall here. Thanks to Joel Robbie who edits this show. To my producers, Gold to Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I am back next week. I will see you then. 
Today's show is brought to you by IBM. 16 million new collar jobs will be created by 2024. To help fill them, IBM's new education model gives high school students workplace experience and an associate's degree. 90 P-Tech schools are already preparing graduates for tomorrow's STEM careers. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash P-Tech. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. Silicon Valley is back for another season and another pivot. This time, founder Richard Hendricks turns his sights on launching a decentralized internet. With so much focus on data tracking and privacy on the web, this latest turn of events feels eerily relevant. But this should come as no surprise. The comedy has made a name for itself with two real jokes about startup culture. It's the show's attention to detail that feeds the comedy. Every reference is on point, not to mention the fantastic Emmy award-winning cameos from people like me. I'm still waiting for that Emmy, but I really enjoyed being on it, including giving Gavin Belson advice on how to run Hooli. Get new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. 